Welcome to Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right. I'm your host, Augusta DeLemo. Today, I'm joined by Simon Perdue, a PhD candidate in history at Northeastern University. He's here with us today to talk about why gender is so important to the extreme right. Simon, thanks for being here. Thanks very much, Augusta. So let's start off with the big question. Why is gender so important to the extreme right? Well, that's, I mean, it's obviously a big question, um, but gender is one of those um, major social linchpins that everything else is built upon for the extreme right. Uh, the ideology of the extreme right, we obviously associate with racism, we associate with extreme nationalism and hatred, uh, but there's also a deep, deep gender ideology built in there as well. Uh, and the rest of the ideology is built off of that. That's kind of the, the foundation upon which the rest is built. At least that's what I argue in my own research. Um, the far right obviously deals in binaries when it comes to gender. So when we're talking about gender in this case, we're talking about these sort of archetypes of masculinity and femininity. And those identities and those those gender roles are really, really important to the far right as they begin to build the idea of what the ideal man or the ideal woman within their um, you know, activist framework or that ideological framework might be. So gender is one of the, the core sort of blocks upon which the rest of the far right or the extreme rights ideology can be built. That makes a lot of sense. And with that in mind, if this is a critical block used by the far right, are there consistent narratives used by the extreme right? Do they vary across different regions and how have they evolved over time? Definitely. And um, there's definite meta narratives that we see across all contexts. There are are those kind of um, stereotypes, those archetypes that I talked about. And when we think about gender and the extreme right, we think about the archetype of masculinity and the archetype of femininity. Now, that's not to say that there aren't regional variations and um, that these gender norms and gender roles are, aren't shaped by uh, sort of national context and geographical context. Uh, the three cases I look at are the UK, US and South Africa. Um, the one that really stands out as being quite unique in that case is South Africa. Um, in South Africa, uh, the white population is the minority by quite a stretch. And so the, the rhetoric of motherhood is ramped up to a level that we don't see in the United Kingdom and the United States or in other cases across Europe. So that kind of feeds into the way in which motherhood or womanhood is constructed within South Africa. Um, in the United Kingdom and the United States, the same kind of meta narratives do play in. So you've got that motherhood role for women. You've got this strong archetype, archetypal uh, male. Um, that sort of to use language that's popular on the on the websites and the, the chat rooms. The, the Chad idea, um, this idea of what a, a man should be: strong jaw, that Hitlerian uh, kind of image of masculinity. Um, and as I've kind of talked about in my research, um, that idea of masculinity in those cases is also violent. It's also an extremely violent and virulent form of masculinity. So you can see already how the gender roles are kind of like shaping the the role that men and women play within the movement. Men is the more violent activists, whereas women are the homemakers uh, who have babies and produce the next uh, generation of the white race. So that's the meta narrative that you see across the uh, different contexts. But obviously, there are small regional variations depending on kind of the national context. And would you say these narratives have changed over time? One of the things that is very consistent across right-wing groups is this callback to the past, right? They're very obsessed with this uh, traditional image that they have in their mind. So have their narratives shifted in different historical contexts or have these ideas of masculinity 
and the strong man and femininity as motherhood, do they remain pretty consistent across the trajectory of these groups? By and large, the narratives stay pretty much the same. Um, as with, uh, you know, as with the last questions, there are sort of small evolutions that happen. Um, and at particular moments in time, you see different types of narrative being uh, espoused. But the same uh, thing has been constant right throughout the last, I mean, what I deal with being the last 70 odd years. Um, so what you see is the likes of the, the Great Replacement uh, conspiracy theory, which is one of the, the major conspiracy theories that uh, informs um, far-right constructions of femininity. That's been a constant since uh, around the 1960s. And the same ideas that informed that conspiracy theory uh, find their roots way back in the era of high colonialism. Um, so the idea of white genocide, the idea of the white race being under threat, that is one of the major ideological uh, blocks that then uh, informs the far-right vision of femininity. And that has remained constant. That's been something that we've seen uh, that's remained constant. However, uh, as I said, there are obviously evolutions and changes that take place over time. And we're starting to see uh, masculinity in particular taking on a new form um, with the rise of online sphere of the far right. We're seeing a the archetype shifting and becoming much more, um, as I said, that kind of childlike figure that you might see in some incel memes and not in far right memes. Um, while it finds its roots in the same ideas that we see in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, it's definitely taking on a more 21st century kind of um, kind of vision. Likewise, you see some of the um, individuals who are lauded as the pinnacle of masculinity in the far right, the likes of uh, Dylan Roof um, or Brenton Tarrant, Christchurch shooter. Um, these kind of images are, are creating new visions of what it means to be a man in the far right sphere. And it's not necessarily those old... Um, visions of the 1950s, you talk about the uh, imagined past. Um, it used to be that the vision of masculinity was built on the 1950s and, and the idea of an imagined 1950s when the man was the moneymaker, etc. Now we're seeing a new vision of this masculinity that's coming out now as a result of the uh, internet and the result of this sort of very 21st century style of violent activism. Um, I think that's an incredible point. And I think that really pulls into especially ideas about sexuality in the far right. You know, you have these images, especially in the 50s and the 40s, of the white woman under threat of sexual violence from non-white men. Um, I'm thinking of Nazi imagery or even stuff that you see in the United States during Jim Crow, during segregation. And now it's evolved into a different form of masculinity and sexuality under threat. Uh, that you see, as you said, with the chads and incel culture online. So what types of extreme right organizations are these narratives most important to, or are they fairly consistent across groups? Mm -hmm. Well, we see them adopted by groups right across the spectrum to, to varying degrees. Um, the groups that I've been dealing with and where I find that these um, are most I guess, entrenched um, are the extreme right groups. It's the violent uh, anti-democratic groups who are most likely to use terroristic violence. Um, the groups that I'm looking at in my uh, case studies for my dissertation are the likes of um, White Aryan Resistance in the United States, uh, the Afrikaner Verstandsbewegung in South Africa, and um, a couple of different groups, the British Movement, National Front, and the National Socialist Group in the United Kingdom. So the the reason I'm looking at these groups is because violence is such an important part uh, and gender and gender ideas and ideologies 
play a really important role in deciding who commits violence, how they commit violence, what form of violence they commit. Um, so I find that these roles are really, really important for those more violent, more anti-democratic and um, more extremist groups. And the point about violence, I think, is really critical, especially when you start thinking about women. You mentioned earlier that inside of far-right movements, women and men play different roles. This idea of motherhood, uh, this idea of the more violent man. But I wanted to ask, because women of the far right always draw particular attention from media and popular culture. There's this fascination of why are women part of the far right? What are they getting out of it? So how is femininity constructed in the extreme right wing for women? What power do they get in these roles? Um, and how would you like us to think about the women that do participate in far right movements? Yeah, it's very interesting. And this is the crux of what my dissertation is about, is the way in which, you know, womanhood in particular is constructed and the ways in which activist women kind of seek to to find their own way around these constructions, which are almost exclusively uh, set by men. But basically, the um, the general idea of womanhood on the far right is that stereotype, the stay-at-home mother who, um, in the case of the United States, fixes the holes in the Klansman robes, etc., uh, plays very much a support role, and most importantly, has children. Um, as I said, the Great Replacement myth, um, and as you alluded to, it goes way beyond that. We go back to the likes of Birth of a Nation. There's this idea of whiteness being under threat and white femininity being under threat specifically. So women are uh, to be protected in this environment. They are to uh, you know, have children and ensure as the 14 words, the famous um, slogan used by far-right activists say, ensure a future for the white race. So that's kind of the way femininity is constructed. But we can see that women on the far-right are breaking out of these roles uh, or finding ways around this roles, these roles. Uh, the likes of Beta Japa, who was a uh, far-right terrorist uh, in Germany, uh, part of the National Socialist Underground. Um, she was essentially the leader of that particular cell, which was responsible uh, for think at least nine deaths, um, predominantly of, of uh, Turkish Germans during the, the 2000s. When you see the kind of activism happening there, that led to uh, a series of different publications being released uh, by women on the far right who say we can be involved in far right violence and far right activism in a much more uh, real and tangible way than just staying at home, having kids and, and waiting, you know, waiting on our husbands as they come back from whatever cross-burning or whatever um, activist role that they're taking on. Um, and obviously, masculinity has traditionally been uh, presented as the opposite of that. Of that. It is the violent male role. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's all about binaries. So it's constructed as, as masculinity and femininity being opposite sides of the same coin. Thanks for that, Simon. And I guess that leads to my next question of if these are part of the same coin. Does gender have a symbolic role for the organizations that you study in particular? Because a lot of what people are familiar with when it comes to images of masculinity and femininity is either the kinds of material that you see on these far-right chat rooms, the, the contemporary sense, or in sort of 50s fascist imagery are the kind of two elements that people most commonly see. So what is the symbolic role for gender in these movements? Uh, well, there's a few different sort of key symbolic roles. Um, I think the most important one, and the one that I'm writing about at the minute, uh, is the role that that idea of, of threat 
workplace and femininity under threat, um, specifically with regards to um, sexual violence or even violence against children as well, uh, is what I'm currently writing my chapter about. Um, now, what I mean by this is that far-right groups, um, as long as far back as you know, fascism and the far-right ideology goes, have constructed this idea of white femininity being under existential threat um, from predominantly men of color. They construct uh, men of color's sexuality as being inherently predatory and dangerous to whiteness and to femininity. Um, and so they structure their activism around this threat. They structure this as they're protecting white women from uh, the violence that they would be exposed to in uh, whether it be a multicultural society or a, a desegregated school in the 1950s and 60s in the United States, whatever it might be. So the construction of femininity as vulnerable and as, um, you know, a victim, uh, as sort of this idea of victimhood of femininity is really, really important. And that's a really important symbolic role that that plays. Likewise, with that comes the symbolic protector role. Uh, for men within the far right and the idea that you should be able to protect your family you should be armed and ready to protect your family against the as they see it inevitable violence that will come uh, and that then feeds into other arguments about the likes of the second amendment the likes of uh, this sort of confiscation ideology this idea that the government's going to come and take away your guns which won't allow you to protect your family and protect your wife and so these are all tied back to gender it's all tied back to these sort of constructions of gender and the symbology of gender on the extreme right. Um, I think also we talked about the mother role a little bit, and that's really, really important as well. When you're going through the uh, documents and the publications of far-right groups, you're constantly seeing images of, of white mothers with white children in this very, like, the same sort of imagery we see in, in Nazi party um, iconography and, and, and propaganda from the 1940s. It's that same ideology of, of this Nordic looking blonde white woman with her perfect children. And that is the image, the symbolism that they're trying to, to get across. And it's constantly associated with like phrases uh, such as uh, you need to protect this, rise up to protect this. This is uh, under threat. That's the kind of language that's most often that comes along with these kind of images. So you can see that uh, femininity is constructed as something which is um, productive, almost mystical, um, and under constant threat from both the government, um, people of color, uh, and um, the modern world. And feminism also comes into that. There's a lot of rhetoric that demonizes feminism as something that threatens women uh, and threatens these ideals and this sort of idealized, imagined past um, that the far-right activists want to lead, want to live. Apologies. So that's all all part and parcel of the same ideology and it all comes back to gender that way. Yeah, um, I think that's a really great phrase of the imagined past. It's a nice way to sum up the different ways that these uh, conspiracy theories and ideologies around gender operate together to create a framework uh, and a shared language, really, for far-right groups to talk about uh, their relationship to society through these highly stratified gender roles. Um, and I guess that leads to my next question of, can we apply your work to understanding contemporary groups in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in South Africa? When you were talking about, as someone who also works on South Africa, the Great Replacement uh, conspiracy theory, you now have seen major American politicians citing and talking and tweeting about um, the great genocide of white farmers in South Africa. So what can you tell us about how contemporary groups are talking about gender 
um, specifically in these three areas? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's that's a really important point you make about South Africa because um, the quote plight of the white man in South Africa has been something that that's been at the forefront of, of far right uh, rhetoric since the 1990s, um, and it's something that we're seeing still today. As you mentioned, uh, you're seeing politicians uh, tweeting about South Africa and about how, as you said, there's been a white genocide there. So that's been a really really important kind of construction. The other thing is. And it's a weird thing to bring in here, but the QAnon conspiracy theory that's happening at the minute is really, really heavily linked to this. Um, predominantly, and as, as I said, there's this idea of um, women and children being packaged together and the violence leveraged, or the violence um, aimed at women and children. And the whole QAnon theory is built on this idea of a cabal of um, child abusers at the top of society. And that is coming from the same rhetoric and the same ideas that were so present in the 1980s and 1990s. As you go through the, the newsletters of, of the British groups in particular, they're talking about how politicians and people of color are involved in these, uh, you know, cabals, uh, child abuse rings, etc. Um, so that's a direct descendant of these same ideas. Um, we also, you know, obviously talking about the Great Replacement, you can't not talk about Brendan Tarrant, the Christchurch shooter, who uh, himself called his own uh, manifesto the Great Replacement and was directly inspired by the ideas of the likes of Jean Raspail, who wrote The Camp of the Saints, which is one of those foundational texts of this idea. Um, so it's still inspiring violence today um, in all three of these contexts. In the United Kingdom, it most uh, predominantly links to immigration. Uh, anti-immigrant rhetoric is is couched as being, you know, the sort of white genocide anti or great replacement idea. Um, the likes of the English Defence League uh, and more recently um, for Britain movement have used this same rhetoric of white replacement. They've used this same rhetoric of of uh, no go zones and neighbourhoods that no longer feel like quote Britain. Um, and that's all the same idea. That's all this idea that the white race is being outbred, the white race is being pushed out of uh, its quote, homeland, as was the case, uh, as they argue in South Africa. And again, they're using South Africa as their uh, inspiration, uh, or rather their warning shot uh, against this. So that's something you're, you're constantly seeing. In the United States, again, it, it's inspiring these sort of white baby challenges that you see on YouTube. Um, also, the the trad wife trend, which is emerging and, and came scarily close to becoming mainstream recently, uh, is inspired by this idea of white genocide uh, and this imagined past, uh, going back to this imagined past of white supremacy. Um, and, and the trad wife idea is definitely couched in that. And for those of us who um, don't choose to spend our free time <laughs> reading about <laughs> the far right, what is the trad wife trend? So the trad wife trend is this online um, kind of trend that started uh, on the four cha- on four chan and eight chan originally, uh, and it's this idea of the nineteen fifties style housewife who doesn't have a job, just stays at home, has children, looks after those children, um, dresses in that sort of nineteen fifties um, centerfold style, um, and fulfills all the roles of a quote traditional wife. Um, it's this idea of society having gone. Um, the wrong direction and bringing it back to where it was in the 1950s, that archetypal gender role of what a housewife should be. So the trad wife trend is essentially the 1950s housewife having a resurgence in the 21st century. Um, and it did come very, very close to, to going uh, at least partially mainstream. It was trending on Twitter for a few months on and off um, and was, was making the rounds on uh, Reddit and, and sort of more mainstream social media sites as well. Um, so the trad wife trend is something which definitely has its roots in that far-right conspiracy theory, um, but 
definitely moved into the mainstream and there were New York Times articles written about it. Thanks for that, Simon. And, you know, this idea of the trad wife and the 1950s housewife is inherently based on constructions of whiteness, right? As you said, it's a it is a codependent relationship between ideas of whiteness and fear of non-white people combined with these gender ideas. It's impossible to separate them. And I think all of what you said has really hammered home that point of the interconnection uh, between the two, especially in the United States. White nationalism is based on a fear of black people in this country. And so those kinds of undercurrents are present in every single uh, far right movement that you and I talk about, especially in South Africa and the United States. They see each other as kindred spirits, as fighting this great fight. Um, And even though the narrative transform, as you said, they still have very similar roots. Um, So where do you think we should go next when thinking about how to study gender in the far right? What avenues of research? Where are you going next? So where I'm going um, next, hopefully, <laughs> depending as the uh, the job market isn't great, but we'll see. Uh, my next plans are to look at uh, sort of childhood indoctrination uh, on the far right and the ways in which children are imbued with these um, ideologies and the way children's far right material, which is a very real thing, um, is is kind of imbued with these gender ideas and, and gender ideologies, because we know that, that ideas about gender are formed at a very young age. Um, and that's as true as it is uh, in the mainstream as it is on the far right. So that's something I want to look at. And I want to look at the way far right groups are mobilizing gendered ideas. They're um, constructing masculinity and femininity for children and for particularly um children of uh, far-right women uh, and the ways in which that that mother role is is expanded to um, indoctrination and, and ideological uh, kind of formation for children. That topic sounds absolutely fascinating, Simon, and I'm sure many of our listeners will want to hear more from you. So can they find you on social media? Um, can they tweet with you? Tell us where we can find you. Absolutely. Well, as with all the car fellows, I've got my car profile, so you can find me on that website. Uh, but also you can find me on Twitter at Simon P under slash 92. Um, and my website is simonperdue.com. Uh, so please do interact with me, follow me, um, send me your tweets, because uh, I'm always looking to, to make connections with people who are interested in this kind of stuff. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Simon. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, This has been Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right. Thank you.